Well, again, good morning. I've got a, a bell in one pocket, a mic in the other pocket, Chick-fil-A, yeah. <laughs> now, so we are in uh, chapter 17, starting a new chapter today of the, the book of Luke, Gospel of Luke this morning. Uh, so if you will, we want to get this before our eyes, we want to see it before us, so find a Bible, digital, paper, um, whatever, and turn over to Luke chapter 17, um, and as you're doing that, you ever notice how much frustration in life comes from other people? Um, I can't be the only one who sees this, right? If you, if you ask a doctor, what's the toughest part of, of their profession, they're, they're going to tell you, you know, it's just dealing with people. My brother's a doctor, both of them, and that's exactly what they tell me. Uh, every pastor I, I know will say the same thing. They joke, I think they're joking, uh, that ministry would be really easy if it weren't for people, right? What would ministry be? Um, be honest, though. Whatever your job is, whatever your profession is, uh, you say something similar like that along those lines. Even in, in parenting, we, we find it would be incredibly easy to parent except for children, right? In marriages, what's the biggest struggle one spouse has? Well, the other spouse, that uh, that, that person exists. What's a, the toughest part of leadership in army? And uh, I've heard there's a number of things. It's that people do dumb things, right? That's the way it's explained in the army. Uh, having roommates in college is difficult because both roommates are so absolutely convinced, uh, absolutely certain that the roommate they live with is messy and inconsiderate, and they both think the same thing. See, the, the worst part right now of going to the grocery store, and I've heard this from both sides, is, is people, right? It's the people who refuse to wear a mask into the grocery store, or it's the people that are looking at you angry or uh, looking at someone angry because they refuse to wear a mask uh, into, their, into a whatever. Looking at someone angrily because they're not wearing a mask in there. Uh, but what if people is not ultimately what our frustrations, what our problem is in the world, right? Now, today I want to show you in this passage, and in general, that people are indeed not the problem, that sin is the problem. And what often precedes sin is temptation to sin. And so this first section that we're looking at in Luke 17 today is about temptation and about sin and how we are to respond as disciples of Christ, uh, as those who already understand that our sin has been forgiven on the cross uh, with Christ. And so let's just get into it. We're going to read it in two sections, let you know that ahead of time. The first section is just the first four verses of chapter 17. So Luke 17, beginning in verse 1, follow along. He is Jesus at the beginning. And he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word is true. But it's not always easy to receive or to obey, and, and so we ask for your grace this morning to not only understand your word, but to be changed by it, that we may grow in grace to be more like our Savior, more like Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So we like to blame 
people for all the problems in the world. But uh, you remember, if you go all the way back to Genesis, right, to the first book in the scriptures, we see Adam and we see Eve. There's two people, they're together and they have no frustrations. You look forward to eternity, right? There's going to be people in eternity and we're excited about that, but there's not going to be sin in that, in that place. And so do you, do you see it, right? Sin, sin is the reason that we have frustrations. It's not people. Again, think about Adam and Eve, right? They're married. They're naked. I have no idea why that's important here, but they are. Uh, anyway, they're not frustrated with, e- with each other, right? Eve isn't looking at the trash can overflowing uh, and so angry and bitterly saying, you know, Adam, you ever going to take out the trash You know, it's been this way for quite some time. There's nothing like that going on. Adam's not annoyed that Eve has left the car with no gas in it again, right? They live in this absolute harmony, this this peace together. And in walks Satan, or flies. Some have debated whether he loses wings or feet. Um, In the form of a serpent. And, And what's Satan do? He tempts them. The Greek term for temptation in our passage means a a stumbling block, right? It's like when you stick your foot out because someone's coming by, and what do you want them to do? You want them to fall right over that onto their face, right? It means stumbling block. It's the same word that's used for bait or trap when trying to catch a a fish or any other animal. Uh, There's another Greek term which, depending upon the situation, is translated temptation or test. I find that interesting. It's all about intention. If, if someone tempts you, they want you to fail. But if someone tests you, they, they want you to succeed. That's the difference in the context and how that word gets translated. And, and some of you are probably realizing about right now that in the past, you've had teachers that you're pretty, pretty sure have tempted you, handed out a temptation instead of a test, right? Uh, you, you just question whether they wanted you to succeed or not. Seriously, though, my my point is that the the same situation in your life as you look at it can be either a test or it can be a temptation. Say a cashier gives you change. She's supposed to give you $7 in change, but instead she hands you $17 in change. In that single moment, it can be a test or it can be a temptation. If it's a test, it's it's for you to prove, right, for your faith to be strengthened as you do the right thing in this moment. It, It can be a temptation, though, Right? If, if, if it's set up, if the hope is that it weakens your faith and crushes you. It can be both of those things, the same exact event. And so listen, when, when Jesus here says, temptations to sin are sure to come, he isn't being a pessimist. He's not. He, he's being a, a realist. And I know that's an excuse pessimists often use, but seriously here, he's being a realist because Jesus knows in a sinful world that temptations are going to come. And he knows this, one, because he's God, right? So he knows everything, but also because he's lived in this sinful world. He has faced real temptations, and so expect temptations is what he's saying. And in other words, living the Christian life isn't easy, right? It's, it's meaningful, it's, it's restful for your soul, but it's not easy. Um, the Lord redeemed me shortly after I, I turned 17. And, and so I have this experience in my life but before the transformation in Christ and after this transformation into Christ. Uh, and life before coming to faith in Jesus, in one sense, was, was easier because temptations Um, they they weren't so bad, right? It's not so bad to face a temptation when you're not really trying to resist it anyway, 
right? The idea of, hey, I think I could lie and get away with this, and I would just lie and hope I get away with it. There was no sense of like, oh, maybe I shouldn't do this. Or, you know, afterwards, some, some guilt of, well, you know what I just did was sinful and wrong. Um, th- there was none of that. But, but, but as Christians, here's what we, we know is that we're going to face temptations until the moment we die. However, and this is Jesus' point right here in verse 1, Woe to us if we're going to be the ones who are tempting, and it says the little ones, right? Little ones. In in scripture here, he's talking about all true Christians, children of God, but he probably means particularly within the greater context of Luke and what's going on here is those that are who who are new to the faith, those like the tax collectors and the sinners. You remember back in chapter 15, they're following Jesus and uh, they're, they're new to this, and he's saying, woe to you if you tempt them. Now, it's interesting because we tend to expect temptations from certain places, right? Temptations come from where? The devil. Temptations come from worldly people, those who are not in the faith. Temptations come even from our own flesh as we understand it. But, but we don't tend to think of temptations might be coming from our brothers and sisters in Christ. But that's who Jesus is woeing here right now. That's who he's speaking to, his disciples, This is a warning to disciples to not be a temptation, to not be a stumbling block to your brothers and sisters in Christ. And here's the thing, you've probably done this. You probably have, you know, and you wonder, how might we have done this? Like, how about by by complaining with the hope that someone else is going to join you, get on board, and we're going to complain together, you know? Or, Or maybe it's talking to someone in such a way that you're hoping that the person you're talking to is going to get on board and not like the person you're talking about with you in order to, to change their view of this person, particularly if we're talking about that person in an ungracious, uh, unkind way. Now, an unfortunate common one is when encouraging someone you're dating or unfortunately not dating as well uh, to give in to the desire and then to commit sexual sin. That's one we hear far too often. Now, sure, each and every person has responsibility for their own sin. None of us can say, well, they tempted me, so, you know, woe to you, but I'm, I'm free. Uh, that's not a thing, right? We are responsible for our own sin. But if you are the one tempting them to sin, if your goal is for them to join you in sin or to sin even apart from you, Jesus says here that it is better to have a millstone tied around your neck and to be thrown into the sea than to encourage a fellow Christian to sin. Now, a millstone is an over 100-pound round rock. It looks like a wheel that the Flintstones might have used. Uh, there's actually one in the Redina's Bakehouse over at Blue, Blue Earth Plaza uh, out on display. If you want to go by there sometime, go check it out. And when you do, just picture that being tied around your neck and thrown into the ocean, right? Um, it's a dark image that Jesus is using here. It's intentionally a dark image, right? Because if you had the millstone around your neck and you were tossed off a boat, you would sink so quickly, right? You would fall to the bottom of the sea, And there is nobody who wants that. And yet this is better than tempting God's children to sin. That's how serious it is when we tempt someone else to sin. And and still, like I said, you've likely done it one way or another. And so will God forgive you for this sin? Of course he will. If you go to God with a contrite heart and true repentance, he will forgive even this woeful sin. Jesus then in verse uh, 3 here, right? The first little bit of verse 3 anyway. He, he says this. He says, pay attention to yourselves. 
In, in other words, be on the lookout for temptations to sin yourself. In Matthew 26, 41, Jesus gives two wise ways that we can pay attention to ourselves in regards to this. And Jesus says to his disciples there, he says, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Watch and pray. First, we watch, right? We are identifying what, what are you going to be tempted towards? Are you even aware of the temptations around you that you're walking into, right? And you might know some of the ones that are more uh, more likely for you, right? Is, is stealing stuff online, is, is that a temptation to you? Is it, is it pornography use? Is it lying to others? Is it, is it wanting your way all the time? Or is it an unwillingness to submit to authority? What, what is it for you, right? Are, are you tempted to, to just follow the ideologies of, of your peers and the media that they're pressuring you, pressuring you to conform to? Be aware of the temptations that are before you. Secondly, Jesus says that we are to pray. Now, now be honest. How often do you find yourself praying for the strength to fight against a temptation? That that's something on your mind, that you don't just try to do it on yourself, but you're actually praying and asking for the Lord's strength in this fight. And, and for the endurance to fight, because... The answer to our prayer against temptation, you know, is, is rarely to simply remove the temptation. Rather, God gives strength through the Holy Spirit for the sustained battle of sin. And I know this because I've spent most of my Christian life praying in the other way, right? Here's a temptation. God, take away the temptation. It's, it's, it, I think of it this way. It's like if there were a bowl of ice cream before me that I, I'm not supposed to eat, right? And, I, and I'm praying, like, could you just turn it into celery so... So I don't want that at all. Like, that's kind of the way I want my temptations to work. And, and, and instead, you know, God gives us the strength of the Holy Spirit. No, it's going to stay ice cream, but you can do this. You, you, can, you, can, you can do this. I am your strength for doing this. And, and sometimes when I think about God, like, I'll give you power for the strength. I'll give you strength for the battle. I, I look at that and I'm like, well, I, I view it like celery, right? I don't want that. Can we go back to the way I was thinking of? I don't want that. I just want the temptation gone, but that's not the way God usually works. And so let us watch, let us pray for strength to endure, and also let us not fight alone, right? Let us bring our temptations to light and and walk with our brothers and sisters in Christ against whatever our battles are. Tell someone that can encourage you in the battle. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. This teaches us something powerful that we're sometimes unwilling to admit. Here it is. Listen, you, you are united with Christ. That means something. You, you are filled with the Holy Spirit. And, and this means that, that you can overcome any temptation. You can obey God's word. And I know we hear that and it can be terrifying. Now, I don't know about that. That's not maybe, you know, we don't want to believe that. And, and we understand, right? I'm not saying you're going to do this perfectly. You're never going to be holy in this life. I'm not saying every time in every area. But you know, you know that one temptation that just keeps crushing you? That, that one temptation that actually feels, feels like a millstone around your neck. That one temptation that has created such a pattern of failure in your life that you simply feel incapable of resisting at this point. And again, maybe it's pornography for you. Maybe it's, it's it, you know, the, the prideful urge to constantly present yourself as, as, as somebody perfect, as better than you are, as, as just caring what other people think so much. Maybe it's how quickly you explode in anger again and again and again and again, right? And it's worn such a path, you don't know if you can get out of that rut. 
Whatever it is, and in the power of Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, you can resist that. You can. You can't give up. And you need to believe that. The second half of 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. You haven't been tempted beyond your ability. It all goes on. He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. God will give a way of escape or he'll give you the strength to endure the temptation. No matter how long it takes. Then in the second portion of verse 3 in our passage today, I want you to look at it, right? The subject changes here from the sin that we commit to the sin that others commit. And, And Jesus first says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. It's pretty simple. It's about rebuking a brother, a sister in Christ, not rebuking people on the street, right? Don't just go out and rebuke everything you see constantly. Um, so we'll get to what it does mean, but, but I want you to know this, that rebuke does not mean that we angrily just yell at somebody. I played football in high school. It's Texas. They take it a little too serious. Um, I was on a punt team in one of the playoffs once, and they punt the ball up in the air, and another guy catches it, and then we go down and we try to tackle that guy. Uh, that's the whole plan. Uh, I'm the guy who's supposed to go and tackle the guy. I get down there just as he's catching the ball, and I just crush him. Like the hardest hit I've ever put on someone, full speed. And he just crumbles. The ball goes flying. He goes on the ground. I get up thinking, I am an absolute beast. And everyone starts yelling at me. It turns out that he did something called a fair catch. I don't really remember what the signal is, right? The idea is, though, that, it, and it's, it, you know, it's, it's, I think it's a dumb rule, right? This is football. But anyway, you can wave your hands and be like, I don't want to play football anymore. No one's allowed to tackle me. That's a rule. Uh, and, and the idea is if he does that, you're not supposed to hit him. I never saw him do it. At some point, he did it when I was being blocked. Um, that's the way it went. In other words, I messed up miserably here and, and really hurt our team in that way. One of our coaches took me off after the, afterwards and just red faced screaming at me in my face, telling me how stupid I was, how much I've cost the team, just ripped into me. And then a few minutes later, uh, I don't know how long, a little while later, anyway, I'm standing there, you know, feeling terrible, and our, our head coach, you talk to Hoof. That's how all football coaches talk. Um, and the other coach says, oh, I rebuked him, kind of this like, yeah, I took care of that. He won't do that again. Um, and his idea, like, it's always stuck with me. Like, that's the idea of what a rebuke is. That's, that's not a rebuke, okay? That's not really what a biblical view of rebuke here is, right? What, what he did was berate me. He went postal. That's, that's not what Jesus is calling us to do. It's unnecessary with your brother and sister in Christ. It should never come to that. So to, to rebuke is to warn and to correct, to warn your sister in Christ of the danger of the sin she's doing or about to do and to show her a better way. If, if you overhear your, your friend lie to get out of some responsibility, you need to rebuke him. You might not want to, but you need to rebuke him. Rebuke him, you know, gently, not judgmentally, with tender mercy, with brotherly or sisterly affection that communicates love, not condemnation. Our desire when we rebuke our brother or sister in Christ is repentance and restoration. We don't just want them to feel bad. That's not the end goal, right? And so we rebuke because we care about the glory of God and we rebuke because we, we care about our fellow Christian dearly. We, we, we want them to understand that, right? And so we want to even come with a, a tone that communicates, you know, I, I love you, but what you've done is, is wrong. 
And still, you know, as well as I do, at times when you rebuke somebody, uh, this is the moment when the counter-rebuke comes, right? It's probably not the best time. It never is, right? But for whatever reason, it it often turns out that they are going to rebuke you for any and every sin they can possibly remember you've ever committed, right? And in that moment, and and it's usually defensive and not in love, and yet you've got to be willing to just accept that rebuke if it's true. Now, Sometimes I wonder if it's the fear of the counter-rebuke that makes us afraid to actually rebuke our brothers and sisters in Christ. I, I don't want someone doing an audit on my life looking for sin or inconsistency. So if I don't bother them, they won't bother me. Everything's going to go fine. Um, maybe we're just afraid they're going to be mad at us. And I don't want someone mad at me. And, and this is where I remind you, right, that, 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 that God who is calling you to love your brother or sister in Christ here is calling you to rebuke them. Uh, and so let me encourage you to care enough about each other that we will risk um, someone being upset with us if we choose to rebuke them. Because we must rebuke them, right? We should rebuke them. That's the command of Jesus here. Uh, Jesus then in verse 3, after we have rebuked a brother, says this, If he repents, forgive him. Again, simple enough. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. How different the way of Jesus is than the way of the world is, particularly as we look at our culture today, right? We, we live in this world where we, we have this phrase, right? The cancel culture. If you mess up, you are done. You're over. There's no mercy. There's no learning. There's no growth. You're just canceled and done with forever. There is no forgiveness in this mindset. But in the body of Christ, there is mercy, there is forgiveness, and there is restoration. And Jesus then right here can command us to forgive the sins of others against us simply because he has forgiven us eternally damnable sins before him who is holy. See, when you're refusing to forgive someone, when we do that, we ourselves are actually committing a sin as well, a sin that we are going to need the strength of the Holy Spirit to overcome. I don't want to make it sound easy. So forgiveness is not forgetting, um, right? Forgetting, for, forgiveness, though, is not forgetting, right? We, we tend to think of it that way as if, oh, I have no, you sinned against me? I don't even remember that. When did, you're going to remember it. You're going to. You're not going to hold it against them, but you're going to remember it, right? Particularly really evil sins. Forgiveness also doesn't mean you blindly trust someone who has shown a pattern of being untrustworthy. You keep stealing my money. Here's my bank account number and my password. You don't have to do that. You should probably never do that. Forgiveness doesn't mean that we're okay with what, we're, what they did, right? I forgive you doesn't mean it's no big deal. Uh, forgiveness doesn't mean you no longer feel the pain of their sin against you. Forgiveness doesn't mean that we no longer desire to see justice in the situation. Someone could injure you or someone that you care dearly for uh, and you forgive them and you still wish to see the legal system seek justice in this, to see that happen. Here's what forgiveness does mean. Forgiveness between people means a willingness to have peace. We're not going to be at war at animosity anymore. Forgiveness means I'm going to extend love to that person, right? Not just this emotional feel-good thing, but I'm going to do things to them and treat them in a way that is loving. Um, I might not fully trust them, but I will actively love them. Forgiveness means letting go of bitterness and vengeance in your heart, which might be an ongoing battle for you. 
But it's one you need to continue to persist in to find that, to, to come to that point of forgiveness over and over again if it takes. Now, how do we do this? Ephesians 4, 31 through 32 um, helps us with this. It says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted. Here it is. Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. You hear that? You hear that? We, we fuel our forgiving others or the fuel that we have for forgiving others is the reality, the truth that God has forgiven us great sin against him. Colossians 3.13, same idea, right? As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Jesus, in our passage, also says that we are to forgive someone seven times, right? Even if they sin against you seven times in one single day, hey, we're to continue to forgive them seven times, right? In Judaism, uh, it was considered honorable if you forgive someone three times. It's a lot like baseball. Um, and so Jesus raises the standard in this, right? Now it's up to seven. And, and if you're hearing this and you're thinking, okay, seven's not so bad. It, so if someone's going to, you know, sin against me eight times, I could, like, they could be at eight by the time we get to noon today. Uh, and then I can just be forgiving and, and, and bitter from this point forward, right? You can't, right? Re- rest assured, you're not the first person to think of this, um, to want to take this very literal in that sense, right? For, for the sake of trying to get around uh, in your heart this statement of Jesus. Now in Matthew 18, 21... Uh, presumably after our passage today, Peter asked, asked Jesus, and, and I imagine he's coming to Jesus after something. I don't know this, and I, let me just say that outright, but I, I imagine it's something like John has sinned against him, you know, eight times, and he's like, all right, you're over the limit, um, right? And, and so here's what he asks. He says, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me? And he does that thing. Your kids do this too. You know this, right? Um, where he gives the answer. Uh, so, so he's saying, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Uh, let me suggest that just to make sure I know the answer. You want you to confirm this so I can know what I'm doing. And, and I kind of just want Jesus to respond here. Peter, you have to forgive John. Like, because he knows what's going on, whatever it might be. He doesn't say that. What, what Jesus does say is this. He says, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Um, Seven times, but 77 times. And so it's going up, right? And, and we start getting this number. And, and some of you, you, you math people are like, let's add that up and figure out what that number is. Uh, but, but even if you, you know, if you even begin to consider that number, again, you're missing the point of Jesus here. There, there is no quantity of sinning and repenting that justifies us to refuse to forgive a fellow Christian. There is no cancel culture in the way of Christ. Instead, we rebuke and we forgive and we restore. That's the way of Christ. Now, there's one more question here that comes up from this passage. Can we forgive someone who has not repented of their sin? Right? There seems to be this real strong condition there. Uh, In a sense, we cannot forgive someone who has not repented of their sin. Now, hear me out. Let me get a little further, right? Uh, But think of it this way, right? Just like in verse 3, a brother sinning, is the condition for us to rebuke him. If he sins, we rebuke him. Uh, It's put the same way, right? If someone is repenting, that's the condition that we forgive them. If they're repenting, we forgive them. That's the condition there. Uh, However, this does not mean that we can hold on to bitterness in our heart just because they have not repented, right? Well, they haven't repented, so I can just be bitter. Uh, You know, instead, we, we must have forgiveness prepared in our hearts so that we are ready to forgive that sinner when they repent. And it's going to feel a whole lot like actual forgiveness in your heart. Okay? 
It's like a gift that is wrapped and it's waiting and it's got a little name tag on it for the person, uh, right? That gift, though, won't be fully given and won't be fully received until the recipient of it actually shows up before you and it's, and it's exchanged that way. For, forgiveness won't be truly and fully received until they come repenting of that sin. Now, and I'll say this, I've said it before in a lot longer version of it, but I'll say as, as a family, that's the reason we, we try not to use the word sorry in the sense of somebody sinning, right? If, when we sin against someone, instead, instead of just saying sorry, because uh, that's how you have to say it when you're still bitter, uh, instead of saying that, we, we come and we say, will you forgive me? Will you forgive me? That requires a response, a response that is leading towards restoration, leading towards forgiveness there. Okay. So then we have one more section today, and, and to help us keep it in the wider context, I kind of want to put it in the context. I want to tell you the story about a Croatian theo- theologian named uh, Miroslav Volf. Anyone ever heard of him? Nobody. One? You know who he is? Oh, okay. Nobody. All right, so in 1993, he, he's giving this, this lecture to a, a group of people, and he's talking about Christian forgiveness and the way we need to forgive, everything that we've just kind of been dealing with. And, and someone at the end stands up to hear him, and he says, yeah, but, but can you embrace a setnik? And you and I were like, I don't know, what's that? Uh, let me tell you, a setnik was a Serbian soldier who had been in Wolf's own words, the way he describes him, sowing desolation in my nav- uh, desolation in my native country, hurting people into concentration camps, raping women, burning down churches, and destroying cities. That, that's who the question is about. Can you forgive that person? See, this is where forgiving others finds a roadblock in, in, in a lot of people's lives. You know, can I forgive someone who has sinned in, sinned in such deeply horrible, evil ways against me or someone I care for, a nation I love, whatever it might be, is it even possible? Where does someone even find the strength for forgiveness of of that sort of thing, that sort of impossible thing? Because if you live long enough, I I promise you, you're going to be asking yourself at some point, can I forgive the person who has done the most harm to me? The abuser, the betrayer, the most harm. And when Miroslav Volf was asked that question after this lecture, he was silent for an incredibly long time, they say, before finally answering with this raw honesty. He said, no, I cannot. But as a follower of Christ, I think I should be able to. He's admitting in that moment his, his own unwillingness of heart to do that. And I don't know that that's, that's not what I expected when I first heard that story. So anyway, the apostles, though, may have been thinking something similar, feeling this impossibility as Jesus is calling them to forgive, right? Someone who's even sinned against you, uh, you know, seven times in a single day. And so they interrupt Jesus. We, We have all these nice breaks in our Bible, and sometimes we forget these aren't like separate, you know, things. It's an ongoing, continual story that we, we break up in order to get through uh, in, in orderly fashion. But here they go, right? They interrupt Jesus to ask him for help. And that's what's going on there in verse 5. Uh, you see it. You can follow along and read it, right? He says, uh, the apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith, right? Like, okay, we hear you, but, but Lord, increase our faith. And it's a wise request for them, for us, for, for any time we find ourselves facing a situation where, which we can, simply cannot do. It's a wise request because, you know, while we can increase a lot of things in our life, I can, I can increase my muscle um, simply by doing push-ups, right? If you do the push-ups, you're going to get stronger arms. That's the way it works. There's no guaranteed method for increasing my faith. 
right? Certainly time meditating on God's word or time in prayer, or if we put ourselves in a position in life where we're absolutely dependent upon God, uh, where we're just necessary to depend on God, these are good things. They might lead to increased faith, but the, the only way to get more faith is to ask God and God give it. Now, Jesus doesn't respond in any of the ways you might expect, right? You, you might expect him to be like, that's a rude way to ask. You can't demand that. You got to ask, say please, something like that, right? He didn't respond that way. He also doesn't say, okay, more faith. Here you go. There, there's nothing like that. He didn't even deny them more faith. He, instead of, of giving them, you know, more faith, though, in verse 5, we see this. Look at it. It says, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. See, they think they need more faith. And so Jesus points out how a very small amount of faith is incredibly powerful. Because it's not about the quantity of our faith, but the object of our faith that is the real power. Jesus says faith, even as tiny as a mustard seed, can be uprooted and it could call, can, can lead to, you know, uprooting and replanting a mulberry tree in the sea. And this is a weird phrase for us. Why would you want to do that? Um, here's the thing. It's a cultural thing for the Jewish people. This was a common phrase they used. It was just, you know, something that's impossible to do. Um, because mulberry trees were thought to have the, the, the deepest root system that were the most drawn in. And so no one's ever going to get that thing up and move it. Uh, and again, it's just a weird idea. It just means it's something that's impossible. And, and he's showing us that having faith in God is to trust God to do anything that you or I cannot do. See, Jesus' point is, is that it's not about having more faith. It's about having faith in the unlimited sovereign power of God to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. That's why faith, which God gives us, is the way by which we receive forgiveness and, and salvation and the righteousness of Christ in the gospel. We, we must trust God to do what we cannot do. But we also need to learn to, by faith, trust God in everything else that we cannot do. Right? To, by faith, trust in God to remove our fear of COVID-19. To, to remove our, our anger at city ordinances or other ordinances. You know, like, like trusting the Lord for our, our medical and financial worries, to, to learn how to have faith for that. And, and every little thing that, is, that we face in life that is just another drop into our anxious hearts, right, to trust the Lord. Now I want to end here. I want to close with a quote from Philip Rikens, a little extended, so just, just listen and then we'll pray. He says, As we wrestle with God's call to forgive... We need to keep going back to the cross of Christ. That's where we find our own forgiveness and also where we find the courage, the freedom, and the grace to forgive others for their unforgivable sins. This is where I must go every time I feel that I cannot forgive to the cross where Jesus forgave me. If I have faith that Jesus has forgiven me, then I can have faith that he will enable me to forgive others. The forgiveness I offer flows from the forgiveness that I myself have received by faith in Christ. Let us pray. Almighty God, may all that we've learned in your word today change us. Help us to see where we have tempted others to sin and bring us to repentance. Help us to see where 
but we might want to do that. Father, give us hearts that are willing to forgive sins of all sorts that have been done against us and those we care for. Lord, strengthen our faith. Make us deeply aware of what a powerful gift it is to all who have it. And and Lord, we ask that you would grant it to those who are here today and need faith. I need to ask you for faith. And we ask that you would grant it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.